So I'm Tamandra Harkness. Uh, it's my great pleasure to be here and uh, I don't know, facilitate this event, interview Jim, uh, and generally try and keep us vaguely on track. I have three housekeeping announcements before we start. First one is that this event is being audio recorded by Nesta, so it may be released at some point in the future. It's not being filmed, so if you pretended you were going out to a sleazy cabaret and actually snuck out here to <laughs> discuss sci-fi fiction. You're okay until you open your mouth. And uh, at that point, if, you, if you're not meant to be here, disguise your voice or write your question down and give it to the person next to you to read out or something. So it is being recorded. Uh, the fire exit is here. It's the big green fire exit sign and it's basically you go through a door, through another door, and then you, you pretty much get out of the building. I'll tell you if you need to use it. Just, just relax, it's fine. Now, the third thing, I was in two minds whether to mention this, but I was once at a pre-show discussion at an opera house in London. And during this very serious discussion about a new opera, an immensely tiny mouse ran through the room, and there was literal screaming and jumping on chairs. Now, I know you're a much calmer, more serene, a more sensible audience, but I'm just going to tell you, right, earlier, we saw a tiny mouse in this building. So if you see... No, no, it was tiny. Was it? <laughs> if you think you see something moving, it's, it's a mouse, all right? Just, it's, it lives here. Just ignore it. Do not scream and jump on a chair, okay? I've trusted you to tell you this so that when you see, if you see a little shadow at the corner of your eye, you don't go, <gasps> it's, it's just a mouse, all right? Are we good with that? Good. The one person in the middle of the block that is phobic of mice is now not going to listen. But you won't see it, all right? It was, we're, we're being too noisy. It won't come. I'm just telling you in case. Okay, so properly. Welcome. Uh, I'm Tamandra Harkness. This is uh, Professor Jim Alcalidi, OBE. Is that right? Can I call mm. you Jim? Uh, Jim OBE. Jim OBE. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do that now. You're going to be so <laughs> No, no, no. no. Uh, uh, do, do you all, are you all familiar with Future Fest? Maybe a little show of hands. I can barely see, but I can just about. Okay, lots of people are familiar with Future Fest. Excellent. Uh, those that aren't, it's basically, it's been an annual event run by Nesta. Four of them have happened. Uh, one of Europe's <coughs> biggest festivals about the future that brings people together to all kinds of arts, things, discussions, events, exhibits. To, to try and think about the future and try and involve people in conversations about the future with the idea that the best way to predict the future is to invent it. And this year, there's a series of Future Fest lates, of which this is the first. So welcome and well done. There'll be a series of events, so if you didn't know about the others, keep an eye out and um, you can stay informed and come to the others. And then in spring 2020, there will be the first of a another annual series of Future Fests, which will probably happen in March. The, the, the location of the date will be announced soon. So welcome to the first Future Fest late. We also have partnered up with Sci-Fi London. You may have seen a, a man here with a Sci-Fi London t-shirt. It's, it's Lewis, there you go. Uh, so if you want to know about Sci-Fi London, ask Louis. He, he's not shy and will tell you. But he, they very kindly agreed to share some of their short film programme, which is being screened, as you probably saw, out in the other room. So if you didn't see, you can go and watch some more afterwards, including the winner of this year's Best Short Award. 
exactly. Uh, within Their Shadows, which will premiere at the 19th annual Sci-Fi London Film Festival, running 15th to 22nd of May. Programme looks like this. If you stand still for long enough, Louis will thrust one into your hand. There you go. Okay, so that's the housekeeping. So how long have we got left? Good. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Jim OBE to you. I'm, I can't read out his whole bio because that would take up the hour and then we'd have, we'd have run out of time. But briefly, he's a professor of theoretical physics at the University of Surrey, where he also holds a chair in public engagement with science. Uh, as well as being a respected academic in the field of theoretical physics and atomic modelling, Jim has presented BAFTA-nominated Chemistry, a Volatile History for the BBC. Uh, in fact, he's presented lots of things for the BBC. I'm not even going to read them all out because there's too many, but some of my favourites were uh, Atom, a three-part series, uh, The Secret Life of Chaos, and Science and Islam, covering the, the I sometimes call the first scientific renaissance in Islam between the 8th and 14th centuries, but lots of other things. Uh, obviously, we all know radio is better, so he's, uh, <laughs> I may be biased in this, uh, but he's, uh, he's got his own series on radio called The Life Scientific, where he interviews leading scientists in many fields. But the, and, and he's also the author of many, many books, again, far too many to read out. Is There Anyone Out There? Uh, Quantum obviously about quantum physics, and a more recent one, Life on the Edge, about quantum biology, which I, I might come back to and um, ask some more questions about. But, uh, but yes, yeah, so, so the tables have turned this evening, Jim mm -hmm. OBE. Uh, <laughs> I'm the one asking the questions. So this book, okay, so the first thing to say is, this book, which we're here largely to talk about, I have started reading it, but I haven't finished, so no spoilers. Okay. Okay. Uh, so the first thing is, I think you're going to read us mm, an extract. Okay. So I'm assuming that everybody else like me has either just got it or not got it yet. So here's your taster of what the book's like. Right. And then we'll talk about it for a bit. Thank and you. then you will get a chance to chip in and ask your questions. So Jim, off you go. Thank you. Well, so just to, to put it into context, it's... I mean, it's sort of like a Hollywood disaster movie in a book, really. It's, a, it's meant to be. It's a, well, the genre is hard sci-fi, near-future sci-fi. And, and uh, so the early chapters are setting up out this sort of sense of menace, of stuff going wrong. The Earth's magnetic field is, is, is dying. So I thought I'd choose a, a, a short chapter that, uh, where stuff happens uh, and uh, try and give a sense of excitement. Thursday, 7th of February, San Juan, Puerto Rico. Camilla had lived through her fair share of hurricanes during her 85 years in San Juan and knew the drill. She'd spent the morning calling family and friends, making them promise that they'd stay safely indoors with sufficient supplies to keep them going for a few days until the storm had passed. She'd been busy baking and cooking since hearing the weather forecast two days ago. Wiping her hands on her apron, she took out several Tupperware boxes from the cupboard. The rich aroma of chorizo and shellfish in her large pot of asapau permeated the whole of her ground floor apartment. She'd now cooked enough food to feed a platoon for a week and began portioning up the thick soup. She'd kept most of it in her fridge, but decided to take a couple of portions up to Grace Morales on the fifth floor. Camilla was feeling rejuvenated after the recent stem cell injections that had cleared up the arthritis in her knees and was keen to impress her friend with her newfound vigor. Besides, she wanted to have a better view out to sea than she had from her own flat on the ground floor. It had been an exceptionally warm and sticky week, and now the rain had started. The wind had been building all morning, 
and was currently strong enough to blow the lids off garbage bins, sending them rolling down the street with an assortment of autumn leaves, paper, plastic, and anything else not firmly secured. Counting the cost of the damage wrought by storms was a fact of life for Camilla, and she was sure it would be much worse than just a bin lid that needed replacing. Last year, her two sons had clubbed together to replace her old windows with graphene-toughened glass that could withstand the brute force of the far stronger winds, something she was even more grateful for today. Picking up the soup, she left the apartment. She thought about getting in the lift, but then decided she'd like to see the look on Grace's face after telling her she'd climbed five flights of stairs. Grace was indeed impressed by her old friend's regained mobility, though at first she'd been startled by Camilla's breathlessness. Well, there's no need to show off on my account, my dear, she scolded. What's the use of healthy knees if your heart gives out? <laughs> Camilla still managed to chuckle as she caught her breath. I can see how jealous you are, Grace. No point trying to hide it. Now put the kettle on. She barged past her friend into the apartment. To Camilla's relief, Grace seemed just as unconcerned as she was by the approaching storm. They'd keep each other calm. After catching up with family gossip, the two women settled down in front of the window with a coffee and a piece of cake. It was a beautiful view to the north, overlooking the Laguna to the picturesque district of Condado, an affluent tree-lined neighborhood with hotels and apartments, blocks that in turn overlooked the Atlantic. To the west was the 130-year-old Dos Hermanos Bridge that linked Condado with the entrance to Old San Juan. That is, it would have been a beautiful view, but not today. Over the next hour, they watched as the storm continued to build outside. From their vantage point, they could see the palm trees below, below them swaying ever more dramatically in the strengthening winds. And as the hurricane approached, their unease began to build. Camilla had lived through hundreds of storms in her life, but there was something different about this one that she didn't like. And she couldn't quite put her finger on why she felt a growing sense of foreboding. Had visibility been better, they'd have seen the first of the storm surges approaching from out at sea. As it was, Camilla could just make out the other side of the lagoon. Through the driving rain, she saw a few foolish motorists still out on the roads, despite the tsunami warnings that had been broadcast all morning, including several cars crossing the Dos Hermanos Bridge spanning the lagoon, trying to reach safety as quickly as they could. Arriving about a minute apart, it seemed that each tidal surge was bigger than the previous one. Then, as though tiring of playing games, Hurricane Jerome decided to show Camilla what it was truly capable of. She sat, transfixed, her coffee cup slipping unnoticed from her fingers onto the floor. She watched as first the roads and then the bridge itself disappeared under the giant wave. Her heart began pounding in her chest, this time with terror rather than physical exertion. She could just make out a few cars being carried along by the water as it advanced across the lagoon towards them. The scene looked like something from one of those badly made disaster movies she remembered watching as a young girl. Oh, sweet Lord, those poor souls, cried Grace. An almost forgotten memory from Camilla's childhood rose unbidden of a summer's day on the beach with her two sisters when they built an elaborate sandcastle. After hours of painstaking work, sculpting turrets, battlements, walls, and a moat, they'd watched as the tide came in, quickly washing away their creation until the sand was flat and featureless once more. As the wall of water continued across the lagoon towards them, looming ever larger, she instinctively reached across and grabbed hold of Grace's hand. Their apartment window was thankfully higher than the top of the wave, so they were able to build, so were able to watch from their prime location as it slammed into their building, causing it to shudder. 
She heard screams from downstairs, followed by what sounded like several explosions. Maybe those newly reinforced windows weren't a match for a million-ton tsunami. The wave had reached as high as the floor below them when it hit, but had now subsided so that only the first two floors of the building were underwater. The realization that her trip upstairs had most, safe, most likely saved her life left Camilla shaken. How many hundreds of lives, though, at this very moment were coming to an end, trapped in their homes underneath the, way, underneath the water? She looked across at her friend. Tears were running down Grace's cheeks as she let out an anguished, whimpering sound. Camilla felt too numb to speak. She still hadn't moved when, less than a minute later, the next, even larger surge hit land. This time, the wave seemed to have one purpose only. Reluctant to give up its immense store of energy until the final moment, it came for Camilla. There we go. <laughs> I don't think there are any particular spoilers in that. <laughs> so well, it's, it's suffice it's it to say, Camilla isn't one of the lead characters by the end of the book. <laughs> I have to say, I, the bits that I have read so far, I, I have met a number of interesting characters who don't make it even as far as I have read. So... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it is. Some do. This is definitely a new departure from what, what I know you for, the, the, the writing of the... Uh, it, when it really is like a, a disaster movie in a book. If there are any, uh, any film producers in, you can see Jim afterwards to, to buy the rights. Uh, so, it, it, I mean, it's, and it's a great page-turner. So if you haven't already bought it, the Primrose Hill booksellers are outside and you can, you can buy it now. So, I mean, one of the things that I was wondering about, you're obviously, you're, you're a scientist, so you, you have a very good knowledge of a lot of real life mm. existential risks, if you like. Uh, and, and this is clearly an apocalyptic disaster scenario. But the, without giving too much away, because this is pretty clear, the, the particular apocalypse you have chosen is the breakdown of the Earth's magnetic mm. field and what follows from that. Why did you pick that one of all possible science-based apocalypses? What was it appealed to you about um, Well, I wanted something that was an, a natural disaster, a natural menace. I, I think a lot of, um, I mean, this is sort of near future hard sci-fi, so it's set in it, sort of 20 odd years from now in the future. Um, and certainly the backdrop is, you know, the, the, the technology, the, the, the world that, that people are living in is a world based on the science we know now. So there's artificial intelligence, augmented reality, and nanotechnology, and so on. All that is all just the, the, the backdrop. But very often, a lot of writers who've written near, near future hard sci-fi have science as the villain, or certain, certainly scientists misusing science and technology. You know, think Michael Crichton, for example. Um, and I wanted science not to be the villain. I wanted science to be rescuing humanity rather than destroying it. Uh, and so there were all sorts of different scenarios one could have imagined, and there's not much that hasn't been covered. You know, if you think about the... the, the, sort the of asteroid coming the, the, in. Sort of, and you think about, you know, the great the Arthur C. Clarks and the Larry Nivens and the great the classic sci-fi writers who, who, you know, every possible threat to our planet probably has been covered in some way or another. How much then, you, I mean, you, you say that you, you wanted to stick to, or you've, you've used a lot of science that is 
to some extent already here now. Mm. How much did you set that for yourself as a real limit of what you were going to use in the book? Did you say to yourself, no, I'm, I'm only going to build into this world things which I know people are at least working on? Or did you reach some plot points where you went, what I really need now to make this work is a kind of, I don't know, levitation or time travel or... I, I didn't want... Uh, well, I certainly didn't want anything that was going to break the laws of physics. I didn't want... I mean, and I, to, I don't mind. I mean, I'm, I, uh, a mutual friend of ours, Adam Rutherford, gets very, very cross if, you know, he, he sees a bad sci-fi movie. I'm not going to go and watch the latest Marvel film and storm out in, in, in anger because Spider-Man has defied the laws of physics, right? You know, you, you know there are certain... There's, there's sci-fi that you just accept. It's fantasy. Hard sci-fi is meant to be painting a picture of what can be, you know, a future that is possible. So I wanted all the science in there to be correct. There were one or two occasions where exactly as you say, I'm thinking, how am I going to get out of this one? But I've just, I've, I've created, the, I've sort of trapped myself, I've painted myself in, in a corner, but I found a, a sort of <laughs> get out of jail card, which involves quantum mechanics and entanglement, uh, which, is, which, is, which is my thing. But uh, you know, is that is that because you're banking on the fact you know more about that than pretty much anyone else is going to read the book? So well, people yeah. read it or go, "Wow, that sounds amazing!" Yeah, yeah, but yeah. that's his specialist and field. I think, so I think I guess you that I think you'll find possible. yeah that is yeah. Um, well, and the nice thing is, of course, partly because I int I've interviewed so many scientists in the life scientific, so I know what's coming. Uh, I know the science that is just being done today, and the technology and and the world that's going to help us build in a few years' time. And I have access to, so, you know, one of the, the, the characters, Sarah, is a solar physicist, very much based on um, Lucy Green, who is an, uh, a solar physicist at UCL. That's Professor Lucy Green. Professor Lucy Green, who's been on, on, um, on, on TV, Stargazing Live and so on. Uh -huh. done, done. So, so it's, it's, uh, and then a lot of the, 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 uh, the, the big science in the book involves dark matter. Um, Again, I ha I'm lucky enough to have the, the guy that sits in the office next door to me at Surrey, um, Justin Reed, is one of the world experts on dark matter. So I'd go to him and say, is this possible? Is that all right? Would this l l scenario like this? Yeah, that's, that is possible. I'm not so sure how realistic, but it's... it's but you've it's already left the office by then. I've already left the office by then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So is this exactly. where you've done the research for the book, where most people would have to go, oh, I'm going to have to go to the library and read lots of things. You, you just, pop, just pop next, pop next door, door and go... Is that right? Yeah. Could, could dark matter let them go through the earth to the other... They could, good. Yeah, good, yeah. Uh, and then or, or ring up people you've had on the Life Scientific and go, yeah. can I just ask you... you I might, <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, I might as well make use of this resource that I have. You know. <laughs> Was there anything you actually had to go and, and read a new book about or a, probably a scientific paper? There, there, were a, there were a few things. So, you know, very early, the very first prologue, the very first chapter, is set 40,000 years ago, and, and I, I hypothesize that uh, uh, th there's a particular reason why Neanderthals became extinct in northern Europe, uh, which is based on a speculative research paper that I, I found. So oh, I, really? Uh, so I plug that. that. Well, see, that's quite interesting um, setup, because you've kind of... Is that a deliberate contrast? Because you've got the Neanderthals. Basically, it's a rather tragic first chapter. I mean, first of many characters that you introduce and then rapidly kill off. Like, the the killing off calms down after a while. I get that out of my <laughs> system. And, yeah, good. Yeah, good. I think, I think I can take it emotionally. Actually, anymore. having said that, no, it doesn't. But, but so your first, your first character in the prologue, uh, the Neanderthal, 
happens to be, I don't think I'm giving away too much to say, he happens to be off sick one day. Uh, and so he's deep in a cave. And when he comes out of the cave, basically his entire family is wiped out. And, and obviously he's an answer, so he doesn't understand anything about what's going on. And even if he did, there's nothing he could do about it because he's doing well to just stay alive. Is this a deliberate contrast from then to, well, today or 20 years into the future, let's say, where we actually can understand even cosmic scale events and potentially do something about them? Yes, it's, it's the idea that this particular scenario played out 40,000 years ago and, and our ancestors didn't know what it was about. It's happening again. So you don't know why that's happened in that first chapter. It only gradually becomes clear that the Earth's magnetic field is weakening, uh, uh, just as it did 40,000 years ago, something called the Leishom excursion, which, which is true. It's in the geological records that the Earth's magnetic field... The Earth's, yeah, so the Earth's magnetosphere is just like a giant magnet. Oh, which every it on the blackboard. I should, yeah, I should do. <laughs> so that's why a compass works, that you know, the Earth is like a giant magnet. And every few hundred thousand years, the magnetic poles flip. So, so a compass would point in the opposite direction. And we are overdue a flip of the Earth's magnetic field. So this, I know there's a there's a, a Hollywood movie called The Core, which has similar sort of, which is really rubbish. And I even <laughs> one of the characters takes the mick out of it in the book. So that's, I'm getting that off my chest. That, that this is not <laughs> the core. They have to reignite the Earth's, mag the Earth's magnetic field by sending a rocket down that fires lasers into the rock and blasts its way to the. So the, is that a plausible scenario? Nonsense! You no, use, of course not. They need you dark use dark matter, matter for goodness sakes. <laughs> you know, so... Yeah. <laughs> okay, so sorry, I, I, I diverted you. So this is... So the Earth has this uh, magnetic field and basically like a, a giant magnet. Yeah. Uh, and and, 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 it's, and it's because the, 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 there's and the liquid it's core. And then overdue a flip and this is what's happening here. And Only this is what we think happened, well... But there's evidence that it happened 40,000 years yes, ago. Yeah. But there, it sort of it just thought about having a flip and then changed its mind and flipped back again. It weakened and then flipped back again. Here, I don't want to give too much away, but it's just it's weakening. Stuff is ha it's it's a lot worse than that. And th my favourite character in the book is a young Iranian cyber hacker called Shireen, and she basically using her quantum computer, obviously, obviously. is able to, 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 to uncover this, sort of, you know, this conspiracy, this secret that, that's being kept from world governments. Mm. Uh, and uh, things go downhill from there. Is it, is it pretty dystopian? Is there a happy ending? Uh, how much of a spoiler? <laughs> okay, no, all right, don't tell me. No, I was just thinking, I mean, a lot of, a lot of science fiction is very dystopian at the moment. A lot of science fiction about the future is about how awful everything is going to be. Well, no, let, let, let's get it right. It's, all, it's about teenagers with superpowers fighting zombies and vampires. Okay, I'm obviously reading the wrong kind of science fiction. I, I'm sorry, I just watched Netflix. So the, the, kind <laughs> that, the kind that I uh, have been reading is mostly about how awful everything's going to be yes. and how the world's going to end. Uh, but I guess there are different subgenres of science fiction. Have, have you always been a science fiction fan? Yeah, I mean, and uh, to, to a large extent, I was influenced by people like Stephen King as well, you know, because that 
keeping you, you know. Didn't you and write it came for Camilla. Rats, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, I mean, I, I I grew up on 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 Heinlein and Arthur C. Clarke and Asimov and and Larry Niven and Joe Purnell and all those, you know, the, the classics. And and I guess over the last 10, 20 years, I haven't read too much science fiction. I I I, I mean, there's a few. Um, um, Stephen Baxter, um, Robert Sawyer, who's a Canadian sci-fi writer who write near, near science, uh, near future science fiction that I enjoy. But no, it's mostly in my teens and twenties that I read a lot of a lot of science fiction. What's your favourite genre then? Is it that kind of big ideas? Here's a whole way of looking at the universe kind, or is it is it really that you just slid across to watching the fantasy action sci-fi on Netflix. I, d I did certainly enjoy the big, the, the space opera type, you know, sort of thousands of years from now, from now and, and lots of species and intergalactic battles and all that stuff. I, that, that's what I've sort of enjoyed. But I, I do also like this hard sci-fi, this, you know, what, you know. And by hard sci-fi, you mean really closely based on plausible science. V yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Very sort of Michael Crichton, Philip K. Dick, those sorts of things. Do you think that science fiction is important in helping us imagine the future and what role science can play in the future? If done well, and, and, and by that it's not just in, in writing, but, you know, Hollywood... There, there are some very good Hollywood movies. Which, that what are the good ones then? What are the ones that you think, now that, that is going to help us think the right way about the future? Uh, okay, now you've put me on the spot. <laughs> I mean, what? Uh, there's good science fiction and there's very bad science fiction. You know, the Prometheus is an example of very bad science fiction. What's bad about... Well, okay, well, you don't have to be too specific about specific things. What's bad about bad science fiction? When it Having takes... Having said it, when that, it takes you're, you're not yeah. too sensitive about people going... Oh, um, then they made a wormhole. I don't mind that. I don't. I think if it's if it's just meant to be fantasy, that's absolutely fine. As I always say, in science fiction, the clues in the second word. It's fiction. It's an imagined world. That's what fiction is about. But it's when it takes itself seriously and tries to show this is what the world really could be like, uh, and gets very basic bits of physics wrong. Then you know that those sort of things jar. But I mean, I mean, there are examples. I don't mind things like in the original Blade Runner. You know, Harrison Ford, the, the opening of the Blade Runner, Harrison Ford sitting outside reading a newspaper, eating some street food, and you got flying cars overhead. That was meant to be set in the year 2019. It was made in, in the 80s, right? So now there are no flying cars. But they're all reading newspapers. There's no, no one's, they haven't imagined <laughs> smartphones, you know, to scanning through. So it's difficult to predict the future. And I don't mind getting, you know, people getting predictions wrong. It's when it's just very, you know, spaceships going meow past you in, in, in the vacuum of space. <laughs> <laughs> that that's the classic, you know. In, in, in well, we're silence. actually we're going to come on to <laughs> what science fiction gets really wrong about science because we uh, well, it'd be interesting to hear what you think, and we also put out a bit of a social media call on that. So we're going to pick up on that specifically. I just want to come back to mm. this idea of science fiction dystopias because, I mean, in one sense, I think that genre just reflects a certain strand in how we are thinking about now, as all science fiction arguably does. But in another way, 
certainly for me, it worries me that thinking apocalyptically about yeah. the future then actually shapes the way we see ourselves in oh, relation ab- to the absolutely. future. Absolutely. You know, you talk to anyone who's saying, look, artificial intelligence is coming at us very, very fast. There's the understandable concern society has about, you know, am I going to lose my job to automation or to a robot? Fine. But it's the Terminator example and, and Skynet. You know, people think, you know, with artificial intelligence coming, that robots are going to control the world because they've been infected by this dystopian view of you know what what the ai the might do what's the happen? worst that can happen this? yeah and the same with genetic engineering and the same with uh, um nanotechnology for example that's you know it's the worst case scenario science gone bad or science being used by by bad people could you use dystopian science fiction to help us think better about the future or is it or do you think that focusing on a worst case scenario is always going to be a a, I think a it, bad influence. I think it, it can help us because a lot of science fiction ha- has buried within it very strong moral and, and ethical arguments. Mm-hmm. Uh, y- 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 you know, Kurt Vonnegut, for example, writes very excellent fiction. It makes you really think about you know, the, the morality of, 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 of the story. But um, yes, if it makes us think about what pitfalls might be there and what to avoid and how to build in ethics and regulations into the science we're doing now, that's a, a, a good thing. But we don't have to always pick the worst case scenario. You know, you want a sense of threat, obviously that's entertainment, that makes, makes it interesting. But you know, I'm choosing something that could happen just naturally, it's no one's fault, but you know, are we able, is humanity able to pull back from the brink using science? For good, not evil. Okay, I want to talk a little bit, before I give you all a chance to chip in, which I will do soon, I want to talk a little bit about your, your own work, mm. your own research, and, and especially quantum. If you could just explain quantum mechanics in a sense. Yeah, sure. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's the most important theory in all of science, and it describes how all the building blocks of the universe fit together. Mm-hmm. Okay, and good. It's weird. That's <laughs> and it's weird. <laughs> Is it true that if you think you understand it, you don't understand it? That, that is actually very... Uh, it's not a bad uh, description because people th- assume... I'll tell you a qu- quick story. I gave a, uh, a talk at the Royal Institution a few years ago called the Friday Evening Dis- Discourse. And, and um, uh, I talked about quantum mechanics. Uh, and I in, and in, in the course of the lecture, I give this example. For those who know a bit about physics, you'll have heard of what's called the two-slit experiment where you send subatomic particles through a plate with two slits, and the particles don't go through one slit or the other. Each particle seems to, to somehow go through both at the same time in a very weird quantum way. And the experiment's been done over and over again for 100 years, and we have beautiful mathematics that describe exactly what you'd expect to see if you experiment. Everything works apart from a logical explanation of how the hell the particle gets through both slits at the same time. And I said as a throwaway remark, anyone who's able to uh, um, uh, come up with a logical, common-sense explanation, give me a shout. I'll put you in touch with the King of Sweden. There's your Nobel Prize. <laughs> of course, I'd forgotten that the, the, uh, the RI um, lectures are, are filmed and the RI have, has its own YouTube channel. And this particular extract, this 10 minutes or so, 
was also put up on YouTube separately, and it's like got something like two million hits now. I get a dozen emails a week <laughs> from people saying I've. I, they always start. I have no formal training in physics. <laughs> However, I have. I, I think I found the 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 mistake in your uh, in your logic, and I have the solutions to two six. And you know, oh, for goodness sake. Like, you know, and you should try doing it um, with electric field. Yes, done. That. Try to do it within a vacuum. Yes, you've done that. Try to. <laughs> I don't respond to them because that's otherwise that's all I would do. So it is quantum mechanics is very counterintuitive, and that's what I love about it. But people who think, oh, you clearly just haven't thought about it properly. You probably, that's probably ha you haven't given it enough, you know, careful <laughs> consideration. Surely this must be because of this. Yes, we've thought of that, and it doesn't explain it. So it really is. If you think you understand it, if no. Uh, it was the, the, the Danish physicist Niels Bohr's uh, his, his quote, and it's, it's ver varied how it's translated because he said it in Danish. But it's, if you are not astonished by quantum mechanics, then you haven't understood it. That's, that's lovely. So, so, yeah, so even the experts continue to be astonished, or should be continued to be astonished by it. What first, what first attracted you to quantum mechanics? Now, what, what, what first got you interested in it as a branch of physics? I think it, because it was so puzzling, so mysterious. I mean, I, I, as a teenager, I used to read uh, the comic The Unexplained. It was uh, full of things like spontaneous human combustion and UFO abductions and, and all, all sorts of weird... You know, and then I'd, you know, I'd got obsessed for, for, for some unknown reason with uh, Uri Geller bending spoons. And, yeah. and, and, and then I discovered quantum mechanics. I realised, actually, there's a real scientific theory that describes how the world really is that's far stranger than any of this made-up nonsense. And I th then there was an obsession. I need, to, I need to get my head around this. Did you have that teenage thing of, well, once I've got into it and, uh, and started working on it, I will solve it and it will all make sense? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's... And I <laughs> still think that now. <laughs> really? You, th you think you will actually come across the missing piece and go, ah, this explains it all. And then you'll be able to do a follow-up YouTube film. Follow-up YouTube films, yeah. See, okay, yeah. you were all wrong. Here is the correct solution. Um, that's that's a, sort of like the, the deep-seated ambition, but the more likely... I, I'm, I'm, I'm much more modest in my ambitions in that I just hope someone discovers the correct interpretation of quantum mechanics before I die. Um, so not, not even... Not even like uh, an explanation, just an interpretation that makes the correct. Sense of it. It's not. It's going to be weird. I mean, it's going to be either you know. It could be that there are parallel universes. It could be that there are signals sent back in time. It could be that there's every point in the universe is spontaneously connected with every other point. There are a dozen different interpretations of what the mathematics of quantum mechanics is telling us about nature, but nature behaves in one way or another. Either there are parallel universes or there aren't. We don't know which one is the correct approach. So we just we say, oh, leave it to the philosophers. We, we can use quantum mechanics. It works. So physicists and chemists have just basically learned to live with the weirdness. It, it sounds a bit like when mathematicians go, well, this, this is really hard to do. But if we bring in this imaginary number, which is the square root of minus one, then it all works perfectly. Yeah. And when people say, you can't have a square root of minus one, you go, I know, but it works. Yeah, I, I love the square root of minus one. That's, <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. It's Who doesn't love the square root of minus one? Very useful, yes. I do. I <laughs> please yourselves. 
But I mentioned physicists and chemists getting used to quantum mechanics. Yeah. The new thing that I'm fixated by now is whether quantum mechanics plays a role in biology. Ah, now I have a very specific question for you about this, because you're right, because you've got a book out about quantum biology. Mm. Now, earlier today, completely completely separate uh, conversation, a different project, uh, I was talking to a geneticist about eye colour. And to be honest, I said, well, you know, of all the things we can argue about how inherited they are, psychological personality things, eye colour, that's just 100% inherited isn't it right because you, you know it's that whole blue brown thing and he said no not completely it's mostly inherited but then there is an element of chance <laughs> like what, what do you mean element of chance and the word quantum was was kind of slight slipped mouse like mm. across the corner of the room and i went ah now i know who i can ask about this later so is this true is it true that your the color of your eyes is like 95 percent genetic determinism and 5% quantum weirdness? Pro possibly. But, but, <laughs> no, but, no, I want a definite answer. No, no, but, but uh, random chance doesn't necessarily mean quantum. I mean, uh, just no. because something's weird or because something's mysterious or because something is, is fuzzy and probabilistic doesn't mean it has a quantum origin. You know, the, the chaos theory is another area of physics where there's lots of randomness happening and unpredictability, but it has yeah. nothing to do with quantum but that's mechanics. that's deterministic, isn't it? It's just that you can't... Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, exactly. But it's just that you can't predict it. You can't predict, you know, how yeah. uh, this, these yeah. double pendulums Whereas are going to swing. Whereas quantum things is, is not only can you not predict it, nobody can predict it. No, it's... Because it's the it, act of trying to predict it will change its... Yes, Absolutely. Is that yeah. right? The is that yes, the act of observing, you just, you cannot m measure where a, an atom is and how fast it's moving at the same time. Now, some interpretations of quantum mechanics say that's because the atom itself doesn't know where it is or how fast it's moving and, until you, you tell it and look at it. But other interpretations say, oh no, it knows very well what it's doing. Quantum mechanics can be deterministic, actually. Um, and there are certain interpretations that say it's just unavoidably we disturb it by looking at it so we can never catch it. Um, so th there is quantum weirdness in the world. Uh, there is randomness in biology. The two may not be connected. And that's one of the problems with this new field of quantum biology is that it opens itself up to anything we don't understand. Oh, well, that must be quantum. You know, it's a All right, I may regret asking this question. How can you tell which bits of random weirdness are quantum and which bits aren't in biology? With difficulty. Um, mathematically, because I'm a theoretical physicist, I don't have to go into a wet lab and, and work with DNA or grow E. coli and, and, and do these, because biology is messy. It's fiddly, isn't it? It's, it's really fiddly. fiddly, yes, there's too many variables. Uh, physicists like, you know, to tweak a few dials and do your experiments under control conditions. But I like doing the maths. So what I, what I do with, with my research group is develop quantum models of certain very specific phenomena that take place inside living cells. How an enzyme moves a hydrogen atom from one part of a molecule to another. How a proton jumps across from one strand of DNA to the other. Um, how a photon of light is captured by a chlorophyll molecule and delivered to the center of the cell. These are examples of very specific mechanisms in biology that we seem to only be able to explain 
if we call upon the weirdness of quantum mechanics, the particle going through two slits at the same time. There's other stuff we don't understand in biology that, that may have nothing to do with quantum mechanics, so it's quite specific in terms of where quantum plays a role, and we don't know for sure just how prevalent it is. Okay, well, clearly disappointed not to get a definitive answer on eye colour. <laughs> but uh, there you go, you have to live with it, I guess. I, I do kind of like the idea that they're just going, oh, we don't understand, it must be quantum. And then, uh, yes. wait, as it used to be, well, I suppose if astronomers' equivalent is, we don't understand, it must be dark matter. Or yeah, dark yeah, energy. or dark energy or whatever. Dark yeah, no, but people say, you know, like quantum, oh, we, consciousness is the f famous example. You know, consciousness is mysterious, you don't understand it. Quantum is mysterious. Clearly, the two must be They're connected. The two are the same. You know, yeah. oh, quantum, oh, that would explain telepathy. No. <laughs> that explains homeopathy. What no, go away. <laughs> what does explain telepathy then, Jim? What, ah, no, let's move on. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> uh, okay, so I, I'm, I'm going to uh, I'm going to give you a few of the things that people tweeted about their. I was going to say favourite. I think favourite is the wrong thing. I think their least favourite examples of wrong, basically wrong science wrong in sci-fi. And uh, really, I'm just going to run these by you to see if they're being unfair or to see if you also pull a face. And then think, start thinking about this now. I want to come out and I want to hear some of your like least favourite or even favourite examples of wrong science in sci-fi. So there's, there's a kind of, mm. there's a group of answers which are basically to do with the behaviour of things in, in space. Tight turns of spaceships, faster than light travel, streamlined space vehicles, weirdly specific, <laughs> yes. almost instantaneous acceleration, inertial dampers, do you know, you know, sometimes quote tweets can be really passive-aggressive. <laughs> Nursial dampers. Uh, explosions in space. Uh, it's the, do those things bother you? You so, mentioned some of, the yeah. whooshing spaceship. Yeah, well, earlier. some of those bother me simply because they're so such silly mistakes. So the, the, the tight turning. But why is that impossible in space? There's no air resistance. Why can't you turn really tight? Well, I suppose... Okay, I suppose you could put thrusters in the opposite direction. Okay, the streamlining then. <laughs> Why the hell would you need to be streamlined if you're in the vacuum? You know, so, you, know you don't need to have... It's not like, you know, wind resistance and you've got to have the, the most uh, yeah. efficient way of, of travelling through empty space. That is a fair point. Although, you see, I'm also thinking of car designers I know who you go, that's a great car shape. Does that make okay, it really aerodynamic? Okay, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Yes, that's absolutely why we made it that shape. So you can go up 30 miles an hour through London looking really fast. And I suppose we've got to get up through the Earth's atmosphere, so we need to be streamlined yeah, yeah, for yeah, that yeah, reason. exactly. Although actually one of the other the objections was easy transition from being on a spaceship to walking about on a planetary surface. Well, that's just teleportation, right? Is that fine? Is teleportation fine? <laughs> um... Quantum teleportation is fine. <laughs> you can do that. You can teleport a quantum particle. What is that like? You, you, you're on a ship and we send you through two slits and you end up on the surface of the planet. What, you, what you'd have to do... Unluckily, your two halves yeah. have been... All the information contained within the trillions and trillions of atoms and particles that make up my body will have to be entangled with atoms of the equivalent elements down on the, on the, the planet's surface. And then using quantum teleportation, you can rebuild my replica down on the planet while destroying me on the spaceship. So it's quite complicated. I don't think Star Trek really, you know, tried very hard to think this through. They didn't do the maths. But, but, but it's, 
it doesn't break any laws of physics, is, is the nice thing about it, even though it's highly improbable. Okay, what about time travel then? Ooh, yeah, well, time travel, again, doesn't break any laws. Our best theory of the nature of time is Einstein's general theory of relativity. And that says time travel is, in principle, possible, in my view, only if we subscribe to the many worlds interpretation of, wait for it, quantum mechanics. <laughs> so if there are parallel universes, then in principle, in theory, we should be able to travel back in time because what's happening is that we'd be sliding into a parallel reality where we can affect the future there. So you don't get any other paradoxes of going back and killing your younger self. All right, because you just end up being in a different universe. You can, you can kill yourself in that universe. Okay. You know, which I don't know why you'd want to, but I mean, you know, if you did, it wouldn't lead to a paradox. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just thinking this is, <laughs> this is a very nice kind of book-centred event because a lot of authors would have by this point said, uh, my new novel, Sunfall, about my new novel, 28 Sunfall. times. And you have not said it at all, but you have got quantum mechanics into almost everything. <laughs> I, I love Which quantum <laughs> mechanics more than I'm, I care about selling my new novel. And it's from the sound of it, it's weirder and, and less, <laughs> less likely. Okay, well, this is a couple of, a couple of objections here. Uh, and then I want to come out and hear some of your objections. These are quite interesting because perhaps they're not strictly wrong science, but they're quite interesting objections. One of them is applying humanoid stereotypes to aliens. And the other one is, stories assume gender roles will be the same in the future or on other planets as they are here and now. Okay, well, yes. I mean, obviously, this, is, this, this doesn't apply to yours because yours is only 20 years and it's this world. Uh, so I don't, don't think that really applies. Yeah. But it is true that there are stories set you know, 10,000 years yeah, in the future. And, and, and it's the same old... And, yeah, mysteriously, it's the female crew members who are still... Who are still making, making the, the tea. tea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, what I do like is it's the female characters in the book that are the strongest. What's nice is that I didn't... I don't think... Well, I must have done because I wrote it. But I don't think I <laughs> deliberately had a conscious, made a conscious decision. So Shireen, the cyber hacker, is the most rounded... Um, exciting and interesting character. And the, the thing I discovered having you know, written a novel for the first time is you get a, to a point where your characters take on a three-dimensionality. They take on a life of their own. And so you sort of, you want your character to be doing something and they will, they'll say, no, that's not me. I wouldn't do that. You know, and so, oh, okay, to yourself, what would you do then? So, you know, so they, I'm, I, I'm quite pleased with the fact that my female characters end up being the strongest in the book. And and uh, so you know I sort of don't haven't had to you know work at that's just how the story has has, has developed, but yeah I think it's uh, the, the best science fiction writers are the ones who shake you make you think about things that we we take for granted in society what is taboo and what isn't what we we assume is normal behaviour. And they, they push it and say, why would, why would this still be the way we think and the way we live our lives? So good science fiction does make us question the, the, these sorts of aspects. But certainly on the other point of why all aliens look like us, why they all have a, a head and two arms and two legs and green men. Eyes. Yeah, I mean, that's just that's obviously nonsense. I mean, Is it though? I mean, there is, a, there is a point of view, which is that if you were a life form that had evolved be intelligent you would need to there's certain things environment, you, yeah. you would need to have some 
extremities that you could use to manipulate objects. And, and you know, and, uh, you know, the laws of physics are the same. And so if you want to communicate, you'd either communicate using electromagnetic field or vibrations of gas molecules, by which I mean sight and sound. Um, you know, so, so yes, yeah, so you'd have some sort of light-sensitive things, eyes um, or, or, or ears, in order to sort of send signals to each other to communicate through vibrating through an atmosphere. Uh, we know that life, alien life probably needs water. We know it needs uh, hydrocarbons. It's probably based on carbon because carbon is a very useful atom for bonding and making complicated molecules. We know it needs a heat source. We know it needs a certain amount of gravity and so on. So yes, you start to limit what life might look like, but it still doesn't need two legs and doesn't need, you know, the eyes above the nose. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, uh, uh, yeah, we, we anthropomorphize because it's, it's a lazy way of doing things. Okay, on that note, uh, I'd, I'd like a quick round of your thoughts on bad science in science fiction films. And then I'm just going to open up and, and let you ask whatever questions you want, or even your thoughts, but not your off-the-cuff explanations of the double split experiment. No, no, we don't. That's, that's Thank you. vetoing that here and now. You have, to, you have to email that to Jim like everybody else. Uh, so we have some roving microphones. Uh, if you could wait for the microphone to get to you, stick your hand up. If I'm squinting, it's because the light's a bit difficult. Okay, we've got our hands, hands already? Just stick just your hands up very behind, high because yeah. it's hard to see you. Okay, good, excellent. There. Hi. Uh, thank you very much. Very interesting. What are your thoughts on the fact that by the time we've gone out into space and are traversing the universe, obviously, for very science-based reasons, um, we are living in a utopian place where back on Earth, we're all living peacefully, doing art, apparently, and there's no hunger and um, there are no issues. Um, what, <laughs> what are your thoughts about How that? likely is that, you mean? Yes. Post-Brexit. Yes, post-Brexit. <laughs> Post-Trump and everything Post -Trump. else. Post-Trump. Yes. Um, I'm an optimist. I always have been a glass-half-full person. And I think, I mean, certainly what's going to change the way we live our lives is artificial intelligence. And, and it's going to transform society more than the internet and the World Wide Web has. And that's not a thousand years in the future. That's decades away. Uh, and, and, and certainly, I think it's going to, we're going to get to the point where we are not going to need to work because everything will be automated. And therefore, we will, as a species, need to find other ways of giving our life purpose and other ways of, of spending our time. So, I, yeah, I don't think there's anything particularly, you know, you see the ancient Greeks and the powerful Romans, the great empires, you know, the, the top levels of society, they could sit around playing music and eating grapes and whatever, but, you know, because they had an army of slaves to do everything for them. We'd have AI to, to do it. So I think it's possible. It's possible we'll come, come to our senses. I mean, you, sometimes, you know, you wake up in the morning and go on social media and you think, oh, well, everything's going backwards rather than forwards. But ultimately, I think, you know, if we don't destroy ourselves, we should, we should have a utopian society. Uh, and uh, I guess uh, ultimately we will want to explore beyond this planet. For now, this planet is the best place for humans to live by a very long way. Uh, we're not going to want to go and live, you know, f sorry, inhabit some other distant planet, despite what Stephen Hawking said. Uh, I think there's still plenty more we can do staying here. So it's a good fixer-upper, isn't it? 
We can still make this place good. We can still make this. Yeah, we just you know tidy up behind you. You know that's that that's <laughs> that sort of thing. You know sort of you know recycle. Don't fly so much. Um, you know don't use plastic bags. Oh, be fine. Did anyone actually have an example of bad science before we go on to general questions? Okay, yeah, so is yours bad science? No, if it's not, I'll come to you in a minute. I just want to get with the bad science. So, so if it's not that, give it back and I'll come I back to you next. Oh, okay, that <laughs> was a bad science thing. So I can't, is the microphone I, I think on? your microphone's yeah. not on, yeah. Right, so yes. my biggest problem with science rep uh, representation in media is always when scientists are acting not like scientists but like complete idiots, like in Prometheus. <laughs> um, I uh, had a maybe a bit controversial example of a good science fiction. Um, my personal view, I liked Interstellar for one specific reason. Um, there is a a view of humanity's future um, among some people that things will get very, very bad before they can mm. get very, very good. And uh, Interstellar is actually an example of this train of thought. So uh, my question to you is, how bad do you think things can get so that we can still bounce back and get to the good part? <laughs> Thank you. Well, yeah, I, I hope it doesn't get to that to that stage. But I think because I think we actually, you know, if you've been following the news in recent days and weeks, you know, we are getting to the point where it, we're getting beyond the point of no return in terms of species going extinct and so on. And no, I I'd like to think that we will come to our senses before it's too late. We don't want we don't want the whole world. Sort of to, to go to rack and ruin before we decide to, to, to act on it. But can I just pick up on yeah. how many people have seen Interstellar? Good, so you've all come to a science fiction type event. Yeah. So <laughs> clearly. Um, how many of you knew that all the science in Interstellar is correct? Not so many of you. See? So, right, the bit at the end where Matthew McConaughey's floating behind the bookcase in his daughter's... And it's all a bit trippy, right? You know, the, 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 the thing, oh, it's really oh, yeah. Every, yeah but everything in Interstellar, the physics of Interstellar is all accurate. And that's because one of the writers and producers was Kip Thorne, Nobel Prize winner in physics. He won it a couple of years ago for his part in the discovery of gravitational waves. Uh, and Kip Thorne is one of the world experts on relativity theory, and he he made sure the science of interstellar was correct. And another another connection, I just because I just like these connections. <laughs> Matthew McConaughey in Interstellar. Matthew McConaughey also starred as a younger man in another science fiction movie that's one of my favourites from the ninth from the nineties. Does anyone know who that what that is? Contact. Contact. So he was he was um, Jodie Foster's assistant. Contact, the movie in the 90s, was based on Carl Sagan's book, Contact, written in the 80s. And Carl Sagan's book was the first one that used traversable wormholes as a way of getting from one place to another as a shortcut. And the reason he wrote that was because he sent his draft manuscript to Kip Thorne, and Kip Thorne came up with the idea of wormholes. So, so it went, made its way into, into Contact, 
and hundreds of other Hollywood movies and TV programs, and Kip Thorne became sort of the inventor of wormholes, and indeed the inventor of wormholes as possible routes for time travel. So it is possible to stick really closely to actual physics and still make a really wild and improbable Yes, if, if, it's, if it's on the area of sort of relativity and quantum mechanics, since it, there's still stuff we're not quite sure about, so you're fine we have license. So you floating behind the bookcase thing, but a spaceship that goes whoosh. <laughs> I know, go, go figure. <laughs> <laughs> I think, was there another, one more hand with, um, with bad science and sci-fi down the front here? Down the front here? Okay, so um, it, it's a shortcut of bad science. It's artificial gravity in all spaceships ever, where everyone is just walking around. And we right. kind of assume that if they can do that, what else could they do? Because they, they spend all their time, you know, even in Alien, they've got artificial gravity. <laughs> It's yeah, quantum. yeah. Is artificial gravity possible in space? Well, is it quantum? The simplest explanation for, for artificial gravity on a spaceship is to have the flywheel, the spinning wheel, because then you use inertia, centripetal forces, you know, that, 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 that does the job of gravity. But the ordinary, yeah. Um, Anti-gravity in theoretical physics is possible. One of the... Uh, current favorite theories to explain how, how the Big Bang happened, how the universe was formed in the first place, is because of what's called inflation theory. And in inflation theory, our universe was a bubble that burst into life in the multiverse. Right? This, is all, this is proper science, this is not science fiction. And, and it inflated because of some substance called the inflaton field which has anti-gravity. Hang on, hang on. Isn't this this, this is, is this is this is a classic physics trick? It's like, how do you explain gravity? It's really mysterious. Gravitons. <laughs> Gravitons, really. They're a they're a particle that bring gravity. Bring yeah. A gravitational field. You've just taken my question and put an on on the end and then field. I haven't. I haven't. It's totally <laughs> physics. They found one at CERN. <laughs> And now it's, you're doing that. With it's sort of like that, but it's actually. I mean, I mean, the, the inflation theory is a. You inflation. You should hear that Brian, Brian Cox go on about inflation theory. He field. he really believes it. I'm I'm sort of you know, I'm in two minds. I'm not a anyway, cosmologist. Sorry. Okay. So supposing that inflatons are an actual thing, and that this this is how the yeah. universe came about. How does that help you make artificial gravity? Well, we'd have to be able to make our own inflaton field or indeed make our own dark energy, which is what we now know is the mysterious substance that's currently making the universe expand ever more quickly. So I think I do that when I've had a curry. Yeah. <laughs> ah, we'll move on. <laughs> <laughs> so you can find ways of explaining some of these things but I like the science fiction that actually makes an attempt to justify artificial gravity rather than just, yeah, people are just walking around, yeah, because artificial gravity. And they haven't, you know, whether they've spoken to their physicist um, consultants on these things, I don't know. But, uh, you know, So physicists every film needs a physicist consultant. Well, yeah, no, and no, I, you know, there's, there, there's, there's a lot. What was, there was, um, so there's a, a physicist at um, um, Caltech, Sean Carroll, friend of mine uh, who's yes. a cosmologist who's very good he, he he's he's done a few hollywood movie yeah and also wasn't he guest ed, um consultant on the big bang theory at one point yes yeah <laughs> and, and but but he's smart and he knows what yeah. he's so if 
Hollywood and TV producers listen to him, he will give them lots of ideas like this. And I think if it's, if it's possible, if it doesn't break the laws of physics, then it's fair game. Okay, well, we are, we are rapidly running out of time. And Jim, because he's foolish enough to not live in London, has to leave on time and get a train. So what I'd like to do, because I can see lots of you have questions, is what I'd like to do is take two or three at a time and then let Jim respond and then come out again, because I think that way we stand more chance of getting everybody in. So there's two very eager hands down here, uh, and maybe one at the back. So maybe we start at the back, and then if you want to bring the other microphone here, and we'll get these two, uh, and then see if you can somehow answer them all at once. So we start at the back there, yep. Do you think in my lifetime that quantum entanglement will fix the signal on my iPhone? <laughs> will quantum entanglement fix the signal on my iPhone? Good specific question. Uh, okay. Um, so we've talked a lot about dystopia and utopia in terms of scientific uh, fiction. I wonder what you thought about a kind of third theory of how scientific innovation might progress, which is that it might replicate the same kind of shortcomings and prejudices and biases of humanity, um, what that would look like. Very good question. Does science necessarily drive us one way or the other, or will it just be what we've got now but shinier? Uh, and yeah. Hi, I'm Alex. I'm starting a publishing house to inspire the radical social change that we need by telling stories of love, loss, and conflict set in worlds where shit has gone right. So, for example, the detective story set in the world of a 21-hour working week. He's only got so much time to solve the case. Clock is ticking down. Or he's got to go to a popular science talk. And the other key element is technology is the servant, not the savior in these stories. And it's called solar punk stories. But what I was interested in is that you're talking about science, the way people perceive science now and into the future, and how much of it is not that it's the science in and of itself, but it's the cultural, economic, and political mm -hmm. system which the science is put to use in, and that's more okay. the emphasis of the worlds which my publishing house is set in. Okay. Okay, yeah. well, admirably kind of linked questions yeah. there. Okay. Uh, so, uh, so, yeah. Quantum, well, quantum entanglement to um, solve the problem with the iPhone. Yeah, quantum entanglement is a real thing. And uh, th the idea that two separated particles can communicate is now being used in, in uh, or will be used very in the near future in quantum encryption. So uh, whether it fixes a signal in your phone, I'm not sure, but it'll actually make it more secure in terms of people trying to sort of uh, eavesdrop on, on, on what we're doing. So quantum entanglement is going to play a, a big part in, our, in, in electronic technology in the coming decade or two, definitely. Utopia versus dystopia. I think you're right. I think chances are, in our real world, we're going to be somewhere in between. The reason why utopia and dystopia uh, are always brought up is because we go to extremes to, to, to make the, 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 the storytelling more evoking and more powerful. Uh, it's not so interesting to just to have you know the, the way we live now only slightly better or slightly differently. I think in reality we will evolve gradually, and we, we know how quickly we adapt to new technologies and new, new science coming about. We just, we just sort of take it for granted. It doesn't suddenly hit us and make us all go, go crackers or, or use it for, for wrong things. Um, which leads to the, the, the third question about... Um, is it cultural and social? Yeah, more yeah, absolutely. I mean, science, knowledge about how nature works in itself, I mean, by definition, isn't good or bad. It's knowledge. And understanding and enlightenment is always better than ignorance and darkness. 
It's how we use that knowledge and whether we're ready to know how to use it wisely. It's not the science itself, it's how we use it. So absolutely, it's, it depends on culture, it depends on politics, it depends on economics. Something like AI, like artificial intelligence, which is coming so quickly, my concern is that we're not ready for it because we haven't built in the, the ethical considerations, the regulations about how it's going to affect society. Well, that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it or that it's a bad thing. We just need to know how to use it. Excellent. Uh, there was a hand down here, which is uh, Louis, and another one up there. So, yeah, if you've got that already, you start, and then we'll come down to Louis, and then we'll go to somebody else. Yeah. Um, when writing your book, did you speak to any futurologists or experts in that field to make accurate predictions about sort of the tech and the healthcare stuff that sits around it? And is that even possible to make accurate predictions about the future? Okay, did you ask any futurologists? Uh, Louis? Uh, this is a, a pet theory of mine um, and something which... No double slit explanation. No, 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 it won't be. I've got the, mic <laughs> I've got the microphone. Um, what you think about world ships as a possible uh, way of moving forward uh, out of our planet, depending on what we do with it and how we treat it. And one little pet theory of mine is, is that perhaps we are actually on a world ship because we are moving away from a point of a starting point, and yet we've forgotten what the mission was, and we're not looking after this ship very well. Just wanted your thoughts. Whoa, deep. Excellent. Okay, um, and somebody else at the back have a microphone? Yep. I'm just going to give you three at once. Um, it was really great to hear your opinion on contact and interstellar. Um, as a physicist as well, I I'd, I'd was wondering if you'd seen Arrival, and what your views on were uh, of that film. Mm. Okay. okay, so we've got Futurologists, Arrival, are we all on right. a world ship, are we just forgotten? The, the, s <laughs> the, the simple answer to the Futurologist question, actually no. Um, you know, I've, I've read my fair share of science fiction, but I haven't, you know, I, I've, I've certainly uh, read a lot of popular science of, of, you know, people that I've worked with and others in, in, in the States who who have written about how s science, physics in particular, is going. You know, Michio Kaku in, uh, in America has written a lot of stuff on this. Um, Ray Kurzweil, who's, who's a, is a sort of a, an inventor, futurologist, has written about some of this stuff. So I, I was aware of some of their ideas, but I didn't, for the purpose of the book, go and talk to, to, to some of these people. I felt 20-odd years in the future, I was on safe enough ground to extrapolate the science that I know we have today or is coming about and the world that that might lead to in, in the future. World ships. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I don't think we're on a Sorry, world is ship. It, is, is everyone familiar with this idea of world ships? No, okay, a couple of people aren't. <laughs> uh, would you like to briefly say what they are? Well, it's, it, you mean the whole planet... The theory of modern galactic orbit, putting a crew on it... And then and sending it... As as a means of get, getting one planet, yeah. So you you essentially turn you turn a little yeah. planet into a spaceship and send it off. Okay. Yeah. Is this realistic? Are we on one? Uh, well, exactly. I think yeah. I mean that's the point. If you you're if you're getting you know the the, the uh, Alpha Proxima right the closest star to us is four light years away. Uh, so that takes light four years to get there. There's a potential project to send micro spacecraft, Project Starshot it's called, 
to this nearest star, and they will travel at 20% the speed of light, so it'll take them 20 years to get there. Um, and, but that's, that's a tiny, you know, one gram <laughs> spacecraft. But having the sort of, but sending people there, you're not going to be able to send them there in, 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 in 20 years. It's going to take generations. And so you need something big enough for people to live uh, on as a society with everything that they need. And so, yes, mining a, a, a lump of matter that's already out in space, putting what you need on it and living on it is, is actually in the long run, a cheaper way than building a spaceship big enough to do the same job. So I think that's possible. I, but I don't think the Earth is. It doesn't need to be. No, exactly. It doesn't have to have a pointy end uh, and, and fins. Yeah, yeah. And arrival. Uh, uh, right, yeah, absolutely. I loved Arrival. I think the nice thing about Arrival, of course, is that it depicts alien intelligence that doesn't look like us. And that doesn't communicate in a way, it doesn't, doesn't you know, come up and say, take me to your leader. Uh, and so it's intelligent in that way. And it builds on the idea that you know, there's, a, there's an alien already living on Earth, an octopus. You know, octopus octopuses are, are very in, intelligent creatures, but their brain and, and, and uh, it's, it's a system is very different from humans. And so it's, it's a sign that why should aliens look like us with a head, two arms, and two legs. So I liked Arrival for that reason. It was, uh, it was a novel way of, of, of thinking about what aliens might look like. Now, we have literally like 30 seconds left. If there's one really brief question, I'll take it. But it has to be really brief. Okay, the hand right down here. Obviously, the furthest possible point. From the yes, yes. Run uh, faster, now run, Now, you get the run. last word from the audience. It has to be really good, no pressure. Uh, and, then, uh, and then I'll ask Jim to answer that and sum up, and then I will release you back into the bar to watch the sci-fi films. Take it away, sir. All right. Which film describes time travel the best, in your opinion? Good question. Ooh, right. Okay, the best time travel film. Um, there are some clever... I mean, I, I liked Looper. Um, I'm not... Endgame. No heckling! <laughs> Louis, be quiet. No heckling. I've seen Endgame, and actually Endgame... No, 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 don't worry, no spoilers. But the science consultant on Endgame was in fact Sean Carroll. And Endgame has a lot of quantum stuff in it. So, you know, say no more. That's, that's, that's very, it's very good. But I think Looper for me is, is one of those, those time travel films where they've actually sat down and thought, hang on a minute, what if? And they've drawn the flow chart of logic to see if it would actually work. So for that reason, I liked it. Worst time travel movie, Hot Tub Time Machine. No. <laughs> Hot Tub Time Machine 2, in fact. <laughs> and on that note, uh, I'm going to wind up to remind you all to buy Jim Alcalini's book, Sunfall, which is an absolute, well, as you gathered from the bit that he read out, highly entertaining, very, very readable, and completely scientifically rigorous. I mean, what more could you ask? Gosh. And a lot of the characters die, but there you go. Uh, <laughs> Quantum is clearly awesome, even if nobody understands it. Brilliant that you all came. All buy his book outside. And they are continuing to show, I think, science, Sci-Fi London Science Fiction shorts outside. So do stick around, have a drink, do all that. Sorry that Jim cannot hang around, but he's pre-signed some of the books, I think. So you can still get a signed copy. Thank you to Future Fest and Nesta for organising this evening. Thank you all for coming, bringing so much energy and good thoughts and questions. So we didn't mm. have time for more of them. But please mainly thank Jim Alcalini, OBE. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.
Thank you.